Now, one of the things I love about Charlton um, is that it is really hopeful. Uh, Charlton, unlike a lot of Manchester, is spiritual. Like most of Manchester kind of wouldn't really define themselves as spiritual, but Charlton loves to describe, we love to describe ourselves as spiritual. Not religious, of course, but very spiritual. Uh, and that makes it a little bit different. I really loved it. I think it's one of the reasons why we wanted to move here, because we saw that hopeful optimism. Like there, there's a, 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 an optimism here that um, whether you call it naive or not, it still exists, it's still part of it. And I think all of us can really have big plans and big ideas for our lives. Uh, we have big plans and big hopes for our community. But I think with that comes two problems. One is that we're hypocrites. Because first, like for example, we say we care about the poor, but we really don't. And we might elect people who help, we might give money to stuff, but we're not really caring about the poor as much as we probably say that we care about the poor, probably all of us. The second one is we're completely inadequate. Even if we weren't hypocrites, even if we actually followed through with all of the thoughts and things and feels that we have, which we don't, even if we were to do that, we're still inadequate by ourselves to affect the kind of change that, that we're hoping for, to affect the kind of change that would bring the dreams and, and the hopes realized in our world, not just for ourselves, but for our neighborhood, for Charlton. So because of that, we'll join communities to make our lives better. And these are great things to join, like the Spanish club or going to a restaurant or pub that you love. Or we join communities to make our community better, like voting for a certain political party, stuff that we do with Reach Out to the Community, the Longford Center, which is this, uh, it's a residential center for people who are basically preventing homelessness. But we bring with us to all those places those two problems. We're hypocrites and we're inadequate. We don't do the things that we say we want to do, and even if we did, we don't have the power to really affect the change we want to see. To be a part of a community that will affect real change, to have real meaning, we need Jesus. And this is what John teaches us in 1 John. Jesus helps connect our beliefs and actions together, because often they're kind of separate. We say we believe, and then we act this kind of way. So Jesus is the cure for the hypocrite, and that he connects those things. And only Jesus can really deliver the hope that we have. Only Jesus can, can change that problem of inadequacy that we have. Without Jesus, we have community, but not the meaning that we crave. And for us in the church, there's often a disconnect between beliefs and actions. We can live with low-level guilt and carry that along with us instead of giving it to Jesus. And we miss out on the glory of eternal life in the present. So what we need is Jesus to dovetail our beliefs and actions together so we can truly grasp what life ought to be like truly grasp what life with Jesus is like. And that's what Jesus brings. Jesus brings a hope for our lives, the hope for Charlton, and that's a gift that he freely gives. He's happy to give it to whoever wants it. The more we're connected to Jesus and his story, the more the story of our lives can resound with the hope that we're reaching out for. And this is what it means to be children of God. To be children of God. So to be children of God means, well, you need to be born of God. So that's the first part. John starts out by talking about who is born of God in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ, is the Christ, which is the king, Christ means king, is born of God. To be born of God means you love some things, you don't love others. You believe and rely on some things, and you don't believe and rely on some others. You act one way, therefore, and you don't act in other ways. So to be born of God comes with the gift of meaning. But to live out of that, we must sacrifice that which does not give us meaning. So we can't do whatever we want, whenever we want, and still get a life of meaning. It's just, it's just not how it works. It's just not possible. And here's how John talks about it. He talks about these three things here, belief, love, and victory. That's what it means to be born of God. So let's look at verse one here. To be born of God means first to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So Christ is the king, 
And remember, belief is just previously translated as rely. So it's a way uh, to be born of God means to rely on Jesus being the king and not other things. That means our primary allegiance is to Jesus. That's going to come in conflict with the other things that are, are vying for our attention. It's not to ourselves. It's not to our comforts, not to our fears, not to our hopes. When a soldier is given a mission, they do it. It's their primary allegiance. They might wake up in a bad mood, but that doesn't mean they get exempt from the mission. They still have to do it. They still have the task. But the thing that comes first before any of that doing is being born of God. The passive action of being born leads to an active movement of following Jesus. So we're passively born by God. Any child who's born, they had no, like they had no say in the matter. Sorry, Colin, you're born. But to be born into a family, a certain kind of family, leads to an active movement of following what that family is like. And being born by God leads to us relying on Jesus to be our king. So it leads to belief. It also leads to love, verses 2 and 3. It says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So how can we love others well? By loving God and carrying out his commands. That's what John's saying. Now, what are God's commands? Well, immediately, in 1 John, we've been talking about this for weeks, the way God's primary command, other than loving God, is to love others. That's what it means to love God, is to love others. So loving God means loving others, means loving God, means loving others. It's kind of like this infinite feedback loop that keeps going on and on and on. The way to love others is to love God. So, so how, does that, like, how does that work? Well, remember our dual problem. We're hypocrites and we're inadequate. And we need to love God because his way frees us from hypocritical ways of living, of living and frees us from our inadequacy. So how can we tell if we're loving God? Well, we will be loving others. That's how we can tell. Our individual lives... Our community and God are all connected. Those three things, our individual lives, God, and the community, all those three things are supposed to be connected. And when we separate ourselves, either from God or from others, that creates distance between those relationships. And then all of a sudden, we're not doing the thing that John is telling us to do. That's when we do something that we want to do just for ourselves at the expense of God or others. And now the original integrity of those three relationships, us, God, and others, if we're doing what we want to do, only what we want to do, that's going to be fragile. It's going to be broken. We get off track. Now, loving God enables us to love others because through Jesus, we can be freed from being hypocrites. We don't have to live in that hypocritical way that we're kind of bound to because Jesus gives us that gift. And that's how we can love others well. We can actually follow through with what we want to do. And through Jesus, we're given the power to love others in a way that they need beyond what we can naturally offer. Because we can love people really well, but by ourselves, we can't really give them the gift of, of where they need to go next. Through Jesus, he gives us that gift. So if we truly do want to love others, that means we're going to love God. Because God gives us that supernatural power and frees us from being, being, from being hypocrites. So that's what loving others looks like. It also, being born of God, leads to victory. So being born of God leads to belief, it leads to love, it also leads to victory. Verse 4 and 5 says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So John is saying, if you're born of God, your faith has already overcome the world, is overcoming the world in the present. It means... Well, first, like, well, what does that mean, overcoming the world? That's just like, that's just something we kind of throw around. Hey, you guys have overcome the world. All right, let's move on to the next thing. What does that mean? Well, I think it means all the backwards ways that this world exists. 
with its darkness, with its pain, with its bent on excluding others, with its bent on ostracizing others, with its bent on perpetuating unjust systems, everything that seems just completely too overwhelming for us to take on ourselves, everything that's outside of that, we have overcome that. It also means everything inside of us, our own evil hearts that are bent on destruction and keeping people out, the thoughts we have, how we live politely corrupt lives, the websites we visit, the selfishness in our hearts, all of that has been overcome by being born of God. Now, we may not completely live in that all the time, but that's the reality. That who, if you are God's child, that's the reality that you get to be born into. All that is not the way it is meant to be, whether within or without. If you're born of God, you have overcome it all. The message translation translates verse 4 in this way. The conquering power that brings the world to its knees is our faith. Our faith is not benign. There's a power that comes with that. Our faith is what brings meaning to the communities that we're a part of. Any community you're a part of, your faith brings meaning to that community. Without it, the world conquers us, and we know we're going to stay the same, because that's kind of how we are by default. But your faith in Jesus, being God's son, being the king, is the only thing that can bring hope to our broken world. Without Jesus, we all get to experience an incomplete world. We all get incomplete experience of this world that God has intended for us. Things might look good on the outside for some people, especially maybe for some people in Charlton, but there is a lack of wholeness that we all have without Jesus. And Jesus is the only hope we can have for that wholeness. And being born into one family looks different than being born into another. And there are certain traditions and ways that each kind of family has in relating to each other and things that we do, things we do on weekends or how we do mornings or all sorts of things. There are certain values that families are have, certain emphases in life that they're going to have. It would be weird to act like you were part of some other family when you're doing life with this family over here. It would just be weird to be a disconnect. But again, being born is passive. It's something that happens to us first. So the key is surrendering first to Jesus as allowing him to work through us. So if we're born into God's family, that means God has changed our hearts in such a way that the only description we can have is that they're new. That leads to us relying on Jesus as our king because we have new hearts. We don't rely on Jesus to get new hearts. We've been given new hearts, so then, therefore, we can rely on Jesus. And that leads to love, and that leads to victory. So John uh, continues writing here. He talks about Jesus' story than, than our story. So uh, first up, let's talk about Jesus' story, and then we'll talk about ours. Starting in verse 6, it says, This is the one who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. These three testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. Well, what John is trying to do here is explain Jesus' story, but it, it kind of muddles it up a lot. This is really confusing. Like, what? Water, blood, and all of a sudden you're throwing the spirit in? Like, what was going on? He's like, ah, oh, this is a good idea, that's a good idea, and a little bit of that, too. Um, so, what was going on here? Well, first, uh, let's talk about the water. Uh, now, lots have been written on this. Uh, commentaries have all sorts of ideas of what this means, but... Um, Sometimes if, if I think something is unclear in the text, I'll be, I think this is what it's saying. Um, but sometimes even though there's a very, there are various opinions, it seems to be like this is what it's saying. I think that's kind of where we're at today, by the way. So I, it's more than just a 51%. I think this is probably what, what God is saying to us. Um, this is more of like 98% probably what I believe God's saying to us today through his word. So the first is, uh, let's talk about the water. 
the Jesus's baptism is what John is bringing up here. The water is a symbol of Jesus's baptism. Now, that might be kind of weird. Why? What's the deal with that? Well, Jesus's baptism is the ultimate symbol of how Jesus came to earth as a man. He came to earth as a man, did not need to be baptized because he didn't need to repent of anything. He didn't need to say he was sorry to God for anything. It wasn't like his heart was changed. He, he was always perfect. But his baptism is the ultimate symbol of him identifying with us as his people. Uh, he, he says, through Jesus' baptism, he's saying, I am a man. And, and through Jesus' baptism, that's a symbol. That's how Jesus always will be. Jesus now has a human body. Jesus will always have a human body. That's bonkers. What? Like, eternally? God himself is always in, like, an image that looks hopefully a little better than this? Maybe a little bit taller? Like, that's, that's weird. And that is how radical, like, God himself is identified with his people. He's taken on our body. And I think that's what the water is talking about here. But he's not just like us because, uh, John says, he did not come by water only. He also came by blood. So if water is like us, blood is very much not like us. So blood is the symbol of Jesus' death. If water refers to Jesus' baptism, which is like us, blood refers to Jesus' death, which is very much not like us. Because what Jesus did in his death was something that none of us could ever think of doing. He's man, but not man only. He's also God. Jesus experienced death, but his death was not like how any of our deaths will be. When he died, he took all the brokenness that we create through our sins, and he put them to death. That's something we can't do, even if we love someone a whole lot. We can try and affect change, but Jesus on the cross is really affecting the kind of change that we really need, foundational to anything else that might happen to us. On a scale that none of us can really even begin to touch, Everyone who will ever follow Jesus, Jesus has carried all that brokenness with him. I can't imagine what that must have been like. So Jesus is like us in one way, but not like us in another. He's man, but he's also God. That means Jesus knows what it's like to live this life in, in harder ways than we do, but he's one who can actually do something about it. He's not just a, an empathic friend who is there for us, and obviously those are great, but he's not only that, he's also someone who can affect the change for us. And then John has to throw another thing in there. John also says that the Spirit testifies to this as well. So what I think John is trying to say through that is that he's saying Jesus' story is not his own story. It's not like Jesus did this by himself. The Spirit is a witness to it. And the Spirit cannot help but be a witness to Jesus because the Spirit is the truth. So if the Spirit is always talking about the truth and, and this amazing true thing that Jesus went through is the story, of course the Spirit's always going to be talking about it. Jesus, like us as a man, unlike us as God, and the Holy Spirit, they all agree. They're all on the same page. This is what Jesus' story is, and it's a Trinitarian reality. God the Father sent God the Son, and God the Spirit testifies to this. So even though this is a story that Jesus lived out and walked through, it's not just merely his story full stop. It's the Father's story. It's the Spirit's story. It's God's story together. So Jesus, who was God, came to earth as a man. He walked in our shoes. He knew that we are people with hopes and dreams, but he also knew that we are people completely inadequate and hypocritical to realize those hopes, to realize those dreams. And so he made a way. He wrote himself into his own creation, and he gives us the hope we need, not from a distance, not, not from a comfortable, relaxed distance, but through experiencing this world firsthand. Hopefully that clears up things a little bit of like, what in the world is going on there? Maybe when Ross read the, the passage, you're like, wow, that's interesting. I have no idea what that means. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Um, 
maybe another way to think of the reason why John is writing that here is, uh, is this, this story. So Manchester was founded. Does anyone know the, the year that Manchester was founded in? Oh, come on, you Mancunians. American putting everyone to shame. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, 79 AD. That's true. They're fake. The Roman ruins, air quotes. Um, yeah, well, for, for, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, it was founded in 79. That's pretty crazy. There, it's like two digits. That's, that's amazing, especially as an American. Nothing is older than like 100 years old. So, um, at, there are Roman ruins, or at least the site of where Roman ruins used to be, right in the middle of our city. That's crazy. You can walk by them. People walk by them all the time like it's normal. But it's not normal. That's amazing. Now, how much do you think a house for went back then? Like, how much for housing cost? I don't know. A quid, maybe. Who knows? With inflation, um, probably not near housing costs, especially if you if you live in Charlton. But you know, in our houses today, we have running water. We actually have bathrooms. Um, we uh, what else do we have? We have roofs that don't collapse or need to be rebuilt every however many years. Just think of all the advances in home building we've had since the year 79. It'd be mind blowing. We, we would live completely different lives to the Romans that have lived here, you know, a, a couple millennia ago. But really, we're all the same. We're just like those Romans in 79. We have the same needs. We have the same hopes. We have the same problems. So our lives, technology might have gotten better, but our souls still have lag behind. We have the same inadequacy. And only Jesus saw the need that we have as human beings, regardless of what time we live in, whether it's when John is writing or right now in this moment. Only Jesus sees the need we have and gives us a solution, the rescue that we really, really need. Many other ideas and people have come and gone, but only Jesus has come in the water and the blood and has a spirit testifying to it. No one else can claim that. That's the story of Jesus. And so being born of God, Jesus' story becomes our story. The more that these connect, Jesus' story and our story, the more our beliefs and actions will match. And that's a need that we all have. As the church, we tend to know a lot of stuff and our follow-through is often kind of where we lag. And this is what John really gets to starting in verse 10. So the beginning of verse 10, he says, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. So belief is the story of Jesus living in us. Whoever believes this testimony, the testimony is the one that he just wrote about, about Jesus. And verse 11 goes into a little bit more detail. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this is life in in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. So God has given us eternal life. Like, we have it. It's not something only in the future we get to experience. Through what Jesus has done, that we just looked at, we have been given eternal life, life in Jesus. And whoever has the Son has life. So I think generally, if you're like me, we kind of limit this idea of eternal life. It's kind of like, oh, that's reserved for the churchy world of existence that will happen sometime in the future. Um, You know, it's the one where we hang out on clouds and everyone's playing harps. For some reason, harps get a lot of play in heaven. I don't know. I mean, harps are fun and all, but... Um, but what, what John is writing is we are, going, we are experiencing eternal life now because he has given it to us already. That's what we are living in. And of course, the future does exist that we will in some way more fully experience that reality, though details regarding harps still are scarce, I might say. But right now, eternal life is something we can experience. Eternal life means life with the king, life with Jesus. It's not just getting good stuff, not getting even good stuff from God. It's getting God himself. And that's what we get when Jesus' story becomes our story. 
So if you follow Jesus, you are experiencing eternal life now. So how do we experience that benefit? Well, one, we accept the testimony of Jesus. That's basically what John's writing. We witness to Jesus' story by having our lives aligned with his. When our life is out of alignment with his, we're going to be missing out on that eternal life that is ours. So if we say we follow a leader like down a path, but in reality we choose some other path, why would we expect to get the benefits of following that leader on that path if we're somewhere over here? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus, though, is always calling us back to his path because he knows we're always going to deviate, always pursuing us to have his story become ours, and that's what belief looks like. Now, John also teaches us what non-belief looks like. Now, remember the context here. John's not writing to the random person on the street or to people who are outsiders, to, to Jesus' family. He's writing to the church. That's the context. He's writing to people who say they believe in Jesus. And John assumes non-belief is going to occur in the church. And, of course, we experience non-belief all the time. That's why we have this, the confession that we do every week. And we need to be confessing more often than that. He's writing to the church. He knows we don't have it all together and that we need to change. So if in how we live our lives or how we use our words, we don't believe in God, John says uh, in, in verse 11, in verse 10, that uh, we make God out to be a liar. Make, previously, he said that we make ourselves out to be liars. But now he's saying we make God out to be a liar. Kind of up in the ante here. And why is that? Well, they don't believe in what God the Father believes about his son. So again, using the metaphor of like the path kind of thing, if we say Jesus is our guide and then we go off on some other path doing our own thing, and when we encounter others on the trail, we say, oh yeah, Jesus is my guide and, and I'm following Jesus. In reality, we're not. That means we're lying to others. We're lying to ourselves. And we're also lying about who God is. That following God looks like this when it really doesn't. It looks like this over here. Verse 12 says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So if we don't have Jesus, we don't have life. We can't tell others about the life because we don't have it ourselves. So John gives us two ways to live the Christian life, either in belief or in making God out to be a liar. One experiences life and is able to give it to others. The other does not have life and is destined for a life of hypocrisy and inadequacy. At uni, I uh, tried very unsuccessfully to make a guitar once. I was um, in an arts program that had access to a really cool woodworking shop, and the manager actually used to make guitars himself, so my roommate and I were like, oh yeah, this is our chance, we're gonna make guitars. We bought some stuff from this online thing. It uh, didn't last very long, it was like two sessions. Um, but I learned lots of stuff about myself in woodworking, notably that I should never make a guitar. Um, but there are many nuances to making a guitar, and one of them, and they all affect how the guitar is going to sound. So one of them is this joint here between the neck, which is this part here, and the body, which is like this kind of big here. So this joint here uh, matters a lot in how the guitar will sound. Is it going to have a really weak, lame kind of sound, or is it going to kind of resound and reverberate? Uh, an easy way to make a guitar, which we should have went for, but we didn't because I'm dumb, um, was simply bolting the neck on to the guitar. So if you can, this little section here, you can like use four screws and just bolt it right on the neck there. Um, there's there four screws there. This is the underside of the neck and here's the body of the guitar. I don't know if that's easy to see or not. You can literally just slap it on there and bolt it on. And for electric guitars, that's generally okay. But for an acoustic guitar, um, it, uh, doesn't, it doesn't sound the best. For the best sounding guitars, they use what's often called a dovetail joint which is, oh, now I'm in the way. Which is, uh, so here's the neck here, and there's the 
body. And like literally the neck is fashioned in a way that will connect with the body. So here you just have one kind of long connection piece and it's kind of not really held together that well. Where here you have this long, all, like, there's so many different connection points. You have the inside here, you have the inside there, you have this part here and you have the top here as well. So because the neck is connected to the body even like really closely, the guitar itself has a bigger sound. It reverberates more. There's more like of the wood of the guitar to be able to make a sound. And this over the dovetail joint is what it looks like to have our beliefs and actions connect. Multiple contact points. Lots of it's like uh, lots of contact points between the neck and the body. Not just four screws kind of bolted on together. This takes longer to master. It's harder to do. It's more expensive, but in the end, makes uh, makes a guitar really sing. Where this, you can get by but it's kind of slapped together, especially for an acoustic guitar. And this is what it means to have Jesus' story become our story, for the neck and the body to really to function like one piece all together. We know and we act out this story, not just when it's Sunday morning. We know what to do on Sunday morning. We get up, a lot of you all help set up. We worship together, we help take down. There's food involved at some point. But there's also multiple contact points. When you wake up Monday morning, you know what that looks like if you're following Jesus. When that annoying work colleague does that annoying thing that you know they're going to do, there's multiple contact points with what it means for Jesus' story to become our story. When our kid does that thing that drives us up the wall, there are multiple contact points before what Jesus' story becoming our story. When trials come, when joys come, if, those, if that is not set, it will break, and your life will not be resounding anymore. It will just be flapping in the wind. We will experience eternal life insofar as Jesus' story becomes our story. For everyone who follows Jesus, you all have eternal life. We all have it, and it's amazing. We get, but to actually experience it in its fullness, the way we get to do that is as we follow Jesus on his path. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this is life in, in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So to have life is more than just to assent to a body of ideas, as important as that is. To have life is the experience of eternal life, to live out the wholeness that's found in Jesus. What God has already given us, we already have it, so why would we live any other way? We now have eternal life through Jesus. If you don't believe in him yet, you can too. Anyone can get in on this. And this amazing, wonderful story is nothing less than eternity at work. God the Father, St. God the Son, and God the Spirit testifies to this. And through that story, through that Trinity's story of working in our world, Jesus' story can become ours. We can do more than just drift through life. We can be fully alive, and that's what eternal life is all about, humanity fully alive. And that's what this table is a picture of. The plan for the Trinity to include us is the kind of love that only the Trinity can offer, and that's what makes this table, the Lord's Supper, a celebration, because we've found freedom, we've found community, and we've found meaning, and it's only when Jesus' story becomes our story. That doesn't mean we're perfect, we're not always gonna be on that path, and we start trying to write our own plot we need to have Jesus stop and edit it for us and stop us from going backwards and continue in his love. So if Jesus yet isn't yet your story, like this table isn't for you, and maybe use this time to think about what these words might mean for you today. And you don't need to be a member of Redeemer to participate. You don't even need to be a good Christian in air quotes. You know, after all, none of us really are good Christians. We're all bad Christians. That's why we're here. But if Jesus' story is your story, if you are on that path, imperfectly so, we get to celebrate this together. We get to participate in eternal life together. So what we'll do in a moment 
is uh, call Michael up and we'll sing some songs. And as we sing, you can take a bit of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. There's gluten-free on your left. Only through Jesus do we get this kind of joy. And only through Jesus do we have any hope of connecting our beliefs and actions. It's really what we all want to do in our lives. And we get to experience life to its fullness as Jesus has given us his eternal life. So because Jesus was broken, he rescued us from our brokenness, our hypocrisy, and our inadequacy. Because Jesus drank from the cup of wrath on his death on the cross, we now get to drink the cup of eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. This table is for all those who are born of God and therefore all who have eternal life. Let me pray.